It's the New England Take on WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. As always, nhtalkradio.com to get the back episodes of the show and post all the videos and audio on demand if you check out New England Take on Facebook, Twitter, as well as WKXL's social media channels. Today, I'm joined by Neil Levesque. He's the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics and Political Library at San Anselm College. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Busy week in politics. Very busy week. We're, uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, November 2nd. Uh, election day is next Tuesday when this episode is going to be rebroadcasting, which works out well uh, it, during WKXL in the morning. But you guys uh, just released your latest poll. And uh, gen- just for people who aren't necessarily familiar with it, uh, how does your polling work for the, for the Institute on Politics? So on this particular poll, we, we collected 1,541 samples. Uh, so we were actually got 1,541 people to reply in New Hampshire, New Hampshire voters. And uh, that's a fairly large sample for a poll in the state. So usually there'll be about 600 respondents. Now, what we found in the past few years since COVID hit and we went to full text, meaning not direct phone calls, was that we actually were collecting larger sample sizes and getting more accurate results. So as a result, we, uh, no pun intended, so we got um, a sample of New Hampshire voters, and this was about a, almost a week ago now that we went into the field because you collect the data, it takes a few days, and then you tabulate the data, and then it's released. So, and remember that these are just snapshots in time. They're not predictions of who are going to necessarily win. And a lot can happen in the final week when you have things like debates. We have a giant debate here tonight in the U.S. Senate with WMUR TV. It's uh, feet away from me, actually, as I do this interview. Um, so a lot of things can happen that'll change the outcome. But on this particular poll, What we found is that at this late moment, inflation seems to be on the minds of particularly independent voters. And this is no surprise to any of us that go to Market Basket, go to the gas station, fill up our oil tank. And so what we've seen is that abortion has sort of waned slightly as a motivating factor to go out to vote, meaning the Roe versus Wade decision in June. And what we've seen is that people are really upset about inflation and they're concerned about the economy. So what they're looking for is change agents. And in this race, you know, we have Democratic incumbents and we have Republican challengers. And, you know, when you're a challenger, it's much easier to make the case for change, obviously. And so what we've seen is that this large group of independent voters who really make up their minds at the end have broke for the Republicans and so some of the challengers here uh, might be uh, on much less stable ground uh, than they were through the summer. Yeah, and it it doesn't uh, doesn't hurt the challengers the fact that the primary is so close. Dobbs was so as you said, Dobbs being decided so far away ultimately I think really hurt the Democrats with being able to keep that in front of mind because that was like the key thing they were they were hoping for coming into November was that abortion was going to be the be-all, end-all, but New Hampshire is kind of liberal when it comes to its policies, and it's it's a hard case to make for, for people that are so concerned about inflation right now. Yeah, and I would 
categorize this as people are still very concerned about the Dodds decision and abortion. There's no doubt about it. But there seems to be a lot of people now who are saying, I can't afford $5.95 for a gallon of oil for my heating, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And that kind of fear uh, can be really challenging for incumbents. And so the Biden administration at this point is uh, in, in trouble in the fact that he's very unpopular and he doesn't seem to be able to sort of explain his way out of it. And he's not communicating very well. And so if you're associated with the Democratic uh, president, as our Democratic incumbents are, you're going to sync with him. And we've seen these kinds of waves over and over again where, you know, if if the pre- current president is unpopular, you can be in real trouble no matter how much you can make a case in, in, a, in a state like New Hampshire that you did good constituent service or you were bipartisan or whatever. You get swept out. And so what we're seeing now is that there's a lot of trouble there. And it's an amazing sort of uh, race because the U.S. Senate race, you know, upwards of $50 million has been spent. Sometimes people think 60 or 70 on behalf of Senator Hassan. And uh, Don Bolduck, um, even in the primary, barely spent what you spend to run for the state Senate. And at this point, our poll has him up by one. It's in the statistical um, margin of error. And if you look at the cross tabs of the poll, so you really look at all the details of the poll, you'll see that it's almost like splitting hairs. I mean, this race could be decided by one vote or a few hundred votes. We had a race for the U.S. Senate that had a runoff uh, in the late 70s that was that went into recounts and recounts and was decided by just a very, very few votes. Yeah, the I, same mean, thing. I mean, even the the Republicans on the national level stopped funding Bolduc at first after the primary and turned around and said, oh, no, this is he actually changed his message a fair bit. And it's it, you you politicians running this tight, just change their message, just a small amount, like softening up on the stop the steal movement and focusing the priority of look at what Hassan has done seems to have paid off. Right. So if Bolduc keeps this on inflation. Uh, he will benefit. If Hassan can say this guy is an extremist, et cetera, et cetera, then she'll benefit. And so uh, we're waiting to see how that's defined at the, the late mark. Keep in mind, too, the very interesting thing about this entire race and other races here in New Hampshire is that because of the identifier of Donald Trump um, in the primary, Democrats, I would say Democratic-leaning groups, said this candidate and this candidate were the ones that they wanted to have as challengers, so they put money into having them win in Republican primaries. If they win a general election, to some degree, um, Democratic-leaning groups will have basically helped fund some of these winners, which is an amazing dynamic which we have not seen I'm going to really go through my political history here and say that I don't think it's I've seen it like this ever. 
Yeah, and I spoke to uh, Matt Robeson, who's a co-host of, uh, of Beyond Politics here on the station, the former Democratic staffer. And he wrote an article for the editorial board, is the website, uh, on that specifically. And it was a very black-pilled, depressing article about the, the uh, cynical nature of, of where politics has, has ended up. He's ultimately optimistic that we'll eventually go th- get by, get through this, and he thinks the candidates are so extreme that it'll really help the Democrats. But good God, if if it doesn't pay off, I mean, you're really going to be, they funded MAGA coming back. Right. And I think it was a gamble. And we'll see whether or not, you know, it, it uh, comes through and whether or not they were they took the right gamble um, or whether or not these folks are as extreme as they were portrayed. Um We'll see. But it's certainly a very interesting dynamic. I think if you were to take all the money spent on Hassan's behalf and all the money spent on on uh, Bulldogs, I think it's probably 70 to one. Wow. So that's a, an amazing amount of money. Um, and, you know, money is what a lot of consultants and things believe is the lifeblood of politics and, and maybe not in this case. Moving over to the House, I mean, it is surprising to see the explosion in popularity around Carolyn Levitt. I mean, she's still only polling around 44 to 46% in your poll, but the fact that she's very young came basically, at least internally in the state, kind of out of nowhere, and is being a strong uh, challenge to Papas, who was reasonably popular when he came into office. I mean, what's your observation on that? Okay, well, this is really interesting. So Pappas is a Greek person, and the Greek community in Manchester is very strong, and they stick together. He also owns the most famous restaurant in New Hampshire. So I would say on the level of sort of people who are well-known for Manchester, New Hampshire, you've got Adam Sandler at number one and, and Chris Pappas at number two. So you've got that dynamic. He's relatively young, too, early mm. 40s. And then you have Carolyn Levitt. She was actually a student of mine here at St. Anselm College um, not too long ago. She worked as a producer at WMUR, and she's a New Hampshire person. So she's been around. I mean, she's young. But she's a very talented communicator. And she's also um, got a lot of connections to Washington, D.C., the former president, uh, Stepanak, the, the third in line in the Republican caucus in Washington. <clears throat> but when these two debate, you really see this talent on both sides. Pappas is very well-schooled in debating and explaining things and um, very good temper to him. And 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 Carolyn Levitt is, uh, um, as far as like getting on a debate stage or give, giving a speech, she's as good as it gets at her young age. So, you really have this clash of the titans. And our polling showed her down throughout, you know, past the primary. But now as things tighten up, that same group of sort of independents go to the Republicans. She now has a six-point lead in our poll, which has really sort of rocked the political world in New Hampshire because she does kind of come from the former president's White House. Um, she she doesn't change her position on things in a primary and things like that. 
And so I think it sort of shook up the world here in New Hampshire as far as could potentially this popular person, um, popular incumbent, um, not win. Uh, and the, the question is whether or not this is going to happen. Um, there's still plenty of time left and another debate here tomorrow night, trying to keep my days together. Uh, there'll be another debate here with WMUR. And there's a lot of people watching these debates. And remember that it only in, in the U.S. Senate race or even in this House race, it only it could be a couple hundred votes that could change people's minds. Yeah, and it, it's it's been super interesting as as a I'm 35. I I'm in I live exist within the internet basically because <laughs> that's just this how I am. I, I'm a news guy, and it, it's fascinating to see how well Levitt has really built up her image within that world with the the Gen Z in the millennial crowd. Um, is like she's a strong presence. The the ads are are there for sure. The just the general organic presence is very very strong. And I, maybe it's just the circles I'm in, but I don't see much from Papa's. Like like see some traditional advertising and such, but he's just not his Twitter presence is is a joke. I mean, there's nothing there. It's like he comes across really well uh, on the debate stage, uh, interacting with the press and such. But it, maybe it's a bit of a cultural shift. Well, I think that that's definitely probably part of the issue here. Uh, I know that Carolyn Levitt does all of her own social media right from her hand, you know, right right in her magic box, as we say. And and so she's doing this. She is kind of part of this generation that knows really how to operate in that sphere. And she has been in the media. So she knows how to operate. And I hate to sort of compare her to Pappas being older. You know, he's in his... I think early forties. So I always think of him as being a young congressman. (laughs) Um, But it it really is a a challenge. But, you know, in today's world, as my students tell me, if you're not tweeting all the time, you're not going to be relevant. And, and they certainly, she certainly does that. And, uh, and, you know, the former president was like that, right? So what we learned from the former president was, that FDR figured out a way to directly communicate with Americans by having his fireside chats on the radio. And John F. Kennedy learned that you got to get on TV and do well on TV. Uh, Reagan, the same thing. And now the former president said, you know, I don't have to go through the quote unquote liberal media. I can communicate directly to people through Twitter. And he, you know, it's no secret. He was able to do that quite effectively. And this is this is skipping over the over Custer and Burns, but I mean that's kind of the image of how um, why Sununu I think has been so successful. Also, is you interact with Sununu, you're you're getting Sununu like he he's going to talk to you face to face. He's very straightforward, which has led him to have some blunders in, in, in the past with some of his his messaging. But it, I, that has to be part of the reason why he's continuing to pull so well and being able to probably get another turn. Well, I think Sununu is a very interesting political person who, uh, an elected official who I think um, we learned a lot about him every afternoon when he was in, he was on television talking about COVID throughout the pandemic. And what did New Hampshire people learn? That they liked him and they liked how he governed. And he doesn't read from notes. He doesn't, you know, there, it's not some young writing a, a, uh, 
thing for him. He basically gets up there and he tells it like it is. He's extremely smart. If you spend any time with him, you figure out quickly, you know, when he's talking about a piece of legislation, he knows every line in it. But he doesn't necessarily convey that. He conveys the fact that he has great confidence in what he's doing. And it's not like a partisan confidence. So I think that that is the secret to his success. Interestingly, I think there's a lot of people nationally that are really picking up on the fact that Sununu is a talented communicator, knows what he's doing, um, and has been successful. But he hasn't just been successful in a normal Republican way like a DeSantis. He has said no to former President Trump and stood his ground against him and said, no, that's ridiculous. When sort of other Republicans across the country, have, they look like, you know, they're kind of weak need and say, well, whatever the former president says, I'm going to go along, get along. Uh, McCarthy being a famous example of that. Uh, Sunun is not that way. Yet he's extremely popular here. He wins Republican primaries soundly, soundly. And so I think that he's someone to watch. You know, um, Dr. Tom Sherman is a state senator. He's a very nice man. Uh, he's my neighbor. Um, and, and he's a, but he's, he's, this is a tough, tough challenge when you are um, facing someone like who is such a talented communicator. Yeah, and in going through COVID, like people were just, I mean, generally speaking, we stayed open for the most part, as much as the, the libertarian crew might not be happy with the level of open that we had. But generally speaking, we we stayed open. Our numbers were reasonably under control through all of it. And so it, there was some, some rumblings from far left individuals in the state going, so Nunu did horrible and he did this and this and we're not happy about that. We're going to get a real doctor in place. And I don't think that messaging is carried through coming to the actual election. Certainly not. And, you know, his uh, Sherman is new at sort of state campaigning and being on television compared to Sununu. And I think the debate performances sort of showed that. Um, and it's a tough uphill challenge. You know, I'm sure that a lot of people said you need to just go negative on Sununu and create a contrast. But when he did that, you know, his first ad was a negative ad. And I think to some degree, politicians sort of listen to these consultants too much. And, and they forget the fact that at the very heart of politics, you have to be likable. Mm. And people have to say, I like that person and I trust that person. And it can be somebody like Trump who I'd say, you know, you could counter that and say, well, Trump, it, was, it wasn't necessarily likable, but he was likable in the sense to a lot of Americans who said, we know who this guy is because we watched The Apprentice and we don't like this over here, but we like that better. So he is likable. So I think at the heart of politics, people have to be likable. And once people decide that they like you, uh, it's very hard for negative advertising to sort of chop that uh, that down because you believe the person that you spend time with every afternoon talking about COVID. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back for a short segment to talk about the uh, Custer Burns race that we've uh, we kind of skipped over a little bit, but it's also kind of interesting to to get the insights of. Uh, all right, so we talked about the governor race, uh, Senate, and one of the one sides of the the House. So what's going on with Custer and Burns? Like Custer is kind of this kind of quiet figure I feel like in the state unless you're kind of in the education and healthcare circles, and you got Burns come coming out and doing 
mediocre? Is that a way to put it? Well, he's down about eight points in our poll. And when you consider the fact that some of the other Republican challengers are doing so well and he's not, uh, you kind of question what's going on here. So let me put this in a wider context. Yeah. The second congressional district is so deep and wide. You know, so you go from Cheshire County, you go all the way over to the Salem area, you go all the way up to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire. So it is wide and deep. Okay. So Custer, who served for, I believe, 10 years now in the seat, she's never polled well. So if you ask voters, you say, do you have a favorable opinion? She never really gets this strong, favorable opinion. Yet, to her credit, she wins elections, right? So something's going on there. So maybe it's that, and it is tough when you're in the House rather than the Senate to get the earned media to sort of make that imprint on voters and say, I'm with you, you know who I am. Like we just mentioned with Sununu being on television every afternoon. When you're Congresswoman Custer and you want to have a press conference, you know, whether or not the television cameras even show up is question mark. So it's hard to get that kind of attention. But in Bob Burns, he's sort of a, 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 a Trump-type candidate, which is a tough place to be, I think, in that district, which is more Democratic. Remember, you got to win Hanover, <laughs> or at least do pretty well with Hanover, which is about five to one Democratic. So... You've got to win these voters over, and you've got to be able to do it in all the other noise that's going on. Imagine if you were a used car dealer right now, and you're trying to sell cars in Keene and by putting them on television. You couldn't even buy an ad right now. So if you're Bob Burns and you have less money, name ID, etc., and you're trying to get that name ID out and trying to convince voters to vote for you rather than incumbent, that's really hard right now. And so there's a vast majority of voters when asked, They've never heard of the candidate. Now, here's the secret sauce for Burns that I think could happen. If Sununu is popular and he goes to the and you go to the polls and you say, I'm voting for Sununu. And you look down and you say, I don't know who Bob Burns is, but he's a Republican and I'm mad about inflation. Click. That could happen in a big wave. And that's exactly what's what's I think some people are sort of looking at in that race. If he's eight, down eight points, it wouldn't take a lot to do that. So that's where we're at, really, in New Hampshire politics. And again, considering the fact that we're about a week out, things can change rather quickly. One gaffe can, can change the outcome of the United States Senate race. It happened here in 1992 when a, when a challenger to Judd Gregg, who was the governor, was asked. He was a sort of a wealthy person who hadn't spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. He was sort of an outsider. And he was asked on a Channel 9 debate, where is Chester? And he looked at the camera with a blank stare. And the rest is history with Senator Judd Gregg, who served 18, term, 18 years. So you can get really caught off. We saw that with uh, Senator Brown running against Shaheen when he was asked a question about Sullivan County. And his numbers dropped right after that. So these debates in this final period do matter. All right. Give a 30-second elevator pitch for the uh, Institute on Politics. So what we have here at the Institute is we have a very political state where we've combined everything. Television studios, full auditoriums, debates, research, historical aspects here and displays, 
all coming together on one spot with polling. So it's really New Hampshire's home for politics. And I invite people, if they like politics, to get involved here. You don't have to be a St. Anselm College student. We'd love to see you. Both parties were bipartisan, so we'd love to have you. Neil Vesk, Executive Director of the New Hampshire Institute for Politics, the St. A's. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Anselm.edu slash NHIOP if you want to learn more. This is the New England Take on WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kearsed. We'll talk to you next week.